Good morning, everyone. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. We're the creators and editors of Earthrise, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin. The views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. Hello! Welcome to episode 6 of Earthrights. Today we're going to be talking to Miles Rudgley about Ecuador and why it's at the mercy of rich Western nations and multinational corporations and how this has specifically led to Ecuador being in a dilemma over choosing oil to survive or the rights of nature to save the planet and indigenous communities. Miles is currently working as a research associate at a small consultancy which focuses on environmental, social and government issues in the UK. Um, so first of all, Miles, can you tell us a little bit about your year abroad and what you saw in the Amazon? So yeah, I spent about just over a year in South America a couple of years ago, um, nine months of which was to work placement for my, my year abroad as part of my university degree. So I went to Peru and I worked as a social enterprise coordinator for a UK charity based in Peru. And my job is basically to work with their six partner organisations and we would work with them to try and build and generate sustainable sources of income so they can support themselves. Um, so there's many social enterprise projects, including um, a leather workshop. They also had a manufacturer that, that supplied um, handicrafts and sold them to European markets as well as to, as well as to the um, South American market. But then when I finished my placement, I had some time free. So I decided to do a bit of traveling, um, see a bit more of Peru and also um, South America as well. So I flew to Iquitos in the northern Peruvian Amazon. Um, and I took a boat ride, I think it was a week long, eight days, um, up the Napa River. And it was, it was crazy. It was like seven days in complete isolation. You didn't see any form of, um, like roads or electricity. You just saw these, all these indigenous communities disconnected from, from day to day life. So you, you'd go and you'd be the, the first outside people who'd go and see them seven or eight days, just dropping off their supplies for the next week. Um, it was a really fascinating time. And then I remember towards the end of it, when we crossed over the border to, to Ecuador, um, we came to this tiny little town. And the first sign I was greeted by was this oil or life. And I researched a little bit about it because it was such a shocking sort of concept for me, how oil or life, which seemed so incompatible, was made as a choice by the Ecuadorian government. So I, I looked into this and it was actually a political slogan by the prime minister or the president, Rafael Correa who was elected basically on a mandate to develop social, social welfare programs, um, such as education and health programs for mainly rural and indigenous Ecuadorians who he most spoke to. And he justified the extraction of oil, especially in the Amazon, as a means of funding these, these very generous welfare programs. So I, I was really interested about this conflict between such an environmentally damaging industry such as oil extraction and what this meant for the general population and how they justified this. So when I came to designing my dissertation in my final year, which is just when I arrived back in the UK, I thought this would be a very interesting concept to explore in a bit more detail. Yeah, it's an amazing, even just the story of kind of going into this 
tiny town and seeing that sign oil or life like you said yeah yeah it was really it was really interesting as well so i was with this um with this old ecuadorian gentleman he was he was smoking a pipe the whole journey and we were talking about this and he he sort of worked in tourism he had like a lodge but we sent it out to many health workers from the west who'd come with msf and there's five vaccinations and health advice to indigenous communities there and he was saying that um Yusuni National Park, which is the national park they're located in, is one of the most biodiverse regions on the planet. But then still, the Ecuadorian government decided to, to basically just bulldoze it across and set up loads of oil rigging drills um, and start extracting oil, which has runaway consequences for the environment and the people who live there as well. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was such a conflict between the two things. Yeah. So if we just take things back and just look at Ecuador for a moment. Yeah. So, um, Ecuador is situated south of Colombia and west of Peru and has a population of around 17 million. It has a kind of very deep and convoluted history, but fundamentally it used to be the home of a variety of indigenous groups which were part of the Inca Empire during the 1400s. However, Spain conquered these indigenous territories in the 1500s and um, the European diseases that they brought over killed many of these native people um, and others were made to work for the Spaniards. But the people gained independence in the early 1800s and in, in 1830 they formed their own republic, the Republic of Ecuador. Um, the legacy of the Inca and Spanish empires is, is represented by the diverse population and all the different languages spoken um, across Ecuador. Yeah, I, th- I think just just that description there sort of um, lends well to why Ecuador and a lot of places in South America are such interesting places demographically. Ecuador, for example, just as geography has like three zones, has the coastal zone in the west, has the um, Andean or mountainous bit in the middle, and then the Amazon in the east. So it's, it's three sort of disparate geographies that contribute to this, this new country that was developed on no sort of ethnic borders or any traditional Western European concept of a nation. Um, so that's why now we've got the 13 native languages and I'm sure even, even hundreds and more dialects as well. And it's a really a country in conflict between urbanized and rural populations. So most of the cities, like, they have Guayaquil and Quito, the two largest cities. So most of the population is, is centralized there. So you can imagine a lot of, a lot of the politics is centralized and targeted to those two cities as well. Mm. Um, there's also conflict between the, the backgrounds of the people as well. So the indigenous communities, European ancestors and also ancestors of slaves brought over from West Africa as well, um, working on plantations. And this has led now into quite, quite a rich um, tapestry of cultures and demographics. And also there's a lot of issues with how the indigenous population feel they're treated by the mainly educated white and urban political elite. So even though Spanish is the main, main language, a lot of people don't speak that as their first language and a lot of people can't even read or write. So it's, it's sort of a method of control as well. And it divides the population quite heavily yeah it's just really difficult access anything if, if everyone is speaking a different language accessing the doctors and explaining your problem is going to be hard yeah and even even understanding laws of the constitution which are just written in spanish at least I think i've done until recently mm-hmm. it's hard to know what you write so if you don't speak the language they're written in it's very true and kind of speaking of the political situation so the current president of ecuador is lenin moreno but Miles, your thesis focuses on um, the former president, Rafael Correa, who governed for 10 years. So can you kind of tell us a bit more about him and why he got into government in the first place? So yeah, Rafael Correa, he was he's quite an interesting um, politician, a bit of a firebrand, um, what we'd call a populist nowadays. And he really tried to shake up the elite, as I was talking about before, how power really was concentrated before in urban, white and Spanish hands. 
Um, and he wanted to really popularize politics and bring it to the masses. And to do so, he he promised a, a raft of social welfare programs, um, such as increased education, full employment for, for everyone, um, and increased health um, health outcomes as well. It, it's really interesting to, to win over indigenous um, support. He, he also tried to incorporate some of the indigenous, um, you could say like cosmovisions or philosophies and incorporate that into, into mainstream politics. So he promised a new constitution which built in the rights of nature and also this indigenous concept called Sumac Kausai and also extracted the form Buen Vivir. Um, and this is like, this is based on, based on um, indigenous philosophies that humans should exist in harmony with their enlarged environment rather than they should use the environment or Pachamama as they call it in, in South America as a as property or as a resource. Okay. And he, his, the purpose of him really incorporating this was to try and build respect with indigenous population. And he, he won on a landslide. And it was mainly because of his, his concentration of power with, with those historically marginalized by the political process in Ecuador that brought him to power and made him so popular. When you were saying about Sumac Kausai and Buen Vivir, are they essentially the same thing? It's interesting. So Buen Vivir is sort of the, um, the catch-all umbrella term that academics, especially in the West, also in South America as well, have applied to loads of different philosophies, loads of different worldviews. And in South America, they call, they call them cosmovisions, which are basically a community's outlook of life, what they, how they consider themselves related to other people, how they consider themselves their place in society. Um, so the Kawicha, which are an indigenous tribe in Ecuador, um, they called their, their worldview Sumat Kausa, and that's the prevailing culture in indigenous Ecuador. But you have also other communities and tribes and groups using different terms for it as well. For example, the Mapuche in the south of South America, who have the same sort of concept, but different language as well. So Buen Vivir is sort of a, um, a distillation of all these disparate philosophies into one. Okay. Um, when you translate Buen Vivir, it essentially means good living, but it's a lot yeah. more than that, right? It's like all of the different components that make up good living. And part of that is recognition of indigenous people's rights, as well as recognition of yeah. rights to nature. And, and what you're saying is the fact that the President Correa promised these rights and, and this, these existences, that he became popular on that basis. The point is really, if, if this is Simakalsa Buen Vivir is a, is a philosophy or a belief that so many people hold central to their existence, when that's brought into the mainstream of the political arena, that, that is really important and it changes everything. Because it's the, the, whole, the whole point of Sumac Kausai is it goes against the individualism of, of humans. Um, and it's more about you hold the community as, as the most important aspect. And it's, it's more about not taking as much as you need from nature, from one another, from everything, um, which is a, a complete change. It's a complete shift in how politics was conducted and is conducted in, in anywhere in the, in the world, pretty much. So I think for Korea to incorporate that was was revolutionary itself. The, the amount of respect that paid to a lot of people who, until that point, were quite marginalised by the process. So yeah, would you say that kind of including indigenous communities in the, uh, like these political conversations and with law reform in Ecuador has increased the violence? Um, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it has to degree. I think I think obviously it's really hard to quantify if it's a direct link. Um, but I looked, I looked into the drafting of the 2008 constitution where they, where they brought in the concepts of Buen Vivir, Sumac Kausai and the rights of nature. And one of the confederations of indigenous communities, it's called Confeniai. There's actually minutes from their, their meeting where they, they're held in consultation during the drafting of the constitution. And they were very anxious and also very eager to see, see it being brought into the, 
um, political discussion, they gave their full agreement to its incorporation in, into the constitution and in, into politics, then they were also very fearful that, that this wouldn't be followed in upon. And especially when, when the government appeared to go against against this promise of, of holding the rights of nature as core of the government and holding Sumat Khalsai and Buenavir beliefs, when they saw that wasn't being happened, huge amounts of protest and, and reaction from indigenous communities against going against what he promised. Talking of promises, what about all of the social welfare promises? I mean, why were these so important to Ecuador? I think first of all, it was quite a struggle to really provide healthcare and education to all people, but it's also a responsibility of any um, sort of modern nation to do so and hold, hold those values really, really important. So I think by promising these generous social welfare reforms and also promising to hold rights of nature as fundamental to the constitution, it, it's, it's, it's quite a difficult promise for him to keep. And it goes back to the whole point that maybe he didn't really intend to do so. Maybe he was promising something quite bold for a Latin American nation with, with economies that are generally controlled by Western nations and in a situation where he's trying to promise a lot to a lot of different groups of people with totally different cultures and ways of living. Yeah, exactly. So he, in his mandate, he, he promised these, these generous social welfare packages. He incorporated the rights of nature into the constitution. He gave credence to Sunak Kawasai and Buen Bevere. Um However, this didn't happen in the end. And some of the reasons that this didn't happen because the economy suffered a great deal. The Ecuadorian economy has traditionally been focused heavily around, around commodities. Back when it first started, it used to be silver and tobacco and sugar. And then it moved on to fertilizer, guano, which is this um, bird's poo, which was basically fed to the farms of Europe for hundreds of years. Then that industry moved to Germany. Um, then until the 1920s, it was extremely dependent on rubber. And then eventually, so I was reading about this today, actually, uh, 1910s, the British managed to take some of the rubber trees from Ecuador and Peru and exported them to their colonies in Malaysia and Southeast Asia. And they oh. planted vast tracts of um, plantations. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it, it talks a lot about South American economies, how they've, they've been extremely heavily dependent on commodities and the economic history because their South America has been boom and bust and then recently it's been oil so ever since they've, they've struck oil in the Pacific on the western coast of Ecuador um, about 50% of all exports are related to yeah. oil and so as you can imagine when the price of oil goes up or down so does Ecuador's economy and yeah. so can the, the provision of social welfare reforms so you can see now these, these promises that Correa made back in his back in his election um, they're not really dependent on the changes he makes, but they're dependent on the fluctuations of the global economy, which are controlled far away from Quito or Ecuador. So essentially, rich nations and big multinational companies kind of have control over the amount of money Ecuador makes from oil. Yeah, exactly. And this is a historical thing as well. A lot of countries in the in the economic south have basically been exporting nations. That, so they're, they're, they are used to export the raw materials used to manufacture things. So in Ecuador, they, they export crude oil. Mm. And crude oil in itself is not is not that expensive. It's not, it's not that high value of good. It's only once it's refined that it can be sold to be used in cars or for aviation fuel. And that's when it's high value. But obviously, most of this refining is done in the ports in Texas or in the, in the US or in Europe as well. And that's been the economic system for many decades since, since the end of World War II, pretty much. It's very hard for these countries with, that are so dependent on commodities to really get away from that and grow their economy, make them more high value. For Ecuador to really fund these social welfare policies, it would need to move away from, from just oil. But it, this didn't happen at all. So how did rich nations come to control Ecuador's economy? I think that's, that's a good question. I, I probably couldn't really answer this, but um, 
So as I've spoken already a little bit about um, the whole idea of these exporting nations, especially poorer nations with huge landmass, and it's rooted in like colonial history, really, where Spain came in, basically wiped out the population, imported slaves. And ever since then, the whole infrastructure and economic setup is related to commodity extraction. And this is labelled as like the Dutch disease in the sense that um, I think the Dutch in the 1940s or 50s, their economy was, um, was in a really sorry state. They had a big, big flood in the early 50s. And then they discovered a, a huge natural gas field, um, I think in Groningen it's called or something. And then their, their economy became so tied to natural gas that the rest of the economic matrix and infrastructure was so neglected. And their whole society and economy came, became so dependent on the fluctuations of, of that commodity that it was really trapped. And um, in order to get out, they have to invest in other industries. But I think that relates especially to, to Ecuador, because as, as a commodity-based economy since its inception, it's always been so dependent on the prices that have been controlled by the Western finance system. Mm. Also, after World War II, they, they set up the, the Atlantic Charter and the, Western, and, the, and the Washington Consensus, which basically rigged the whole financial system in the favour of the victors of World War II, the US and um, the UK. So they set up, set up the IMF and the World Bank. And the IMF and the World Bank, their conditions for any sort of debt or um, any sort of bailout for a sovereign country was to impose certain conditions, and that was privatise industry and also fix your exchange rate to, to the money markets. So in terms of privatising industry, that basically opened up all these economies to the big corporate giants of the US and Western Europe, um, meaning that most of the money and the, the raw materials are funneled out of the country to be manufactured to higher value goods in the developed world. Yeah. This kind of situation happened with Cuba but I think it's quite typical of Central and Southern American states that by, by being so dependent on one thing and that now in, in the last 100 years, they have no way of controlling the profit of their country. So they're just at the mercy of, mm. of entirely different systems and entirely different cultures. And so a bit like how we were talking with Curtis the other day about the idea of everything being based on growth, the fact that... Um, the IMF and the World Bank were set up by the victorious nations, i.e. US and UK, means that they their whole basis of existence is on growth and capitalism, which mm. for other nations in South America, for example, doesn't fit. It doesn't fit their basis. Mm. Yeah, no, we were talking about um, Buen Revere earlier, and the two differences, the, 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 the real confrontation between Western and South American philosophies is the, the, whole, the whole Western ideal, the whole... Um, approach to economy is, is the unrestricted accumulation of capital until you're as rich as possible. And this is not how society was constructed in, in South America at all. It's, it's more about living harmoniously with, with nature and with one another. Yeah. Um, and to even compete on, on economic terms with these Western corporate giants is impossible. And I, I think the, the whole idea of why Buen Revere was so attractive to Ecuadorian voters was to really try and democratise um, opportunity in South America to give to give people the, the chance to control their own resources and use it within their own means instead of someone else's means. It's like Correa's way of saying, okay, we've been forced into this system that we didn't choose. And because we didn't choose it, we're not going to uh, perform well. And the rest of the world wants our oil. So I'm going to offer a whole new set of rules and a whole new way of living to my nation that doesn't follow what the rest of the world wants us to. Mm. 
So this means that Correa was um, particularly focusing on Ecuador's like, development and the way he wanted it develop, to develop and the way uh, the diverse population of Ecuador, how they all wanted to develop. And what, what you're explaining about the whole international system of money and the ideas of capitalism behind that system means that Ecuador's growth and development was controlled by other people and other factors. Yeah, so- we'll be suggesting as well is how how um, linked the economy and fortune and economic success of Ecuador is, is to oil and to the price of oil in particular. Um, so by by using these this old belief system of Ren Revere, which which is all about um, where growth is not the most important thing, it's, it's more about peaceful coexistence of humankind with nature. That that is what a successful society should be based on, not not high GDP numbers or, or growth per se. So by incorporating that into the constitution, that that's what. All, all political decisions and all economic decisions should be based upon. And um, he created several um, national development plans for, I think, for every four-year period. And it's interesting just the tone of his argument throughout. Um, at first, he does not tie economic growth to oil at all. Then that changes year by year as the oil price changes. He also set up this really interesting scheme. I think I'll go into it, uh, we talk about it later in the episode. When they found huge reserves of oil in the Amazon in, in Yusuni where I, where I did my travels many a couple of years ago um many he years. decided to try <laughs> he, he decided to try and instead of instead of digging up the oil which is against the rights of nature or against the quite vulnerable social communities that live in that area he decided to try and sell the right to keep the oil underground to the international market to set up this initiative I think I think the, the total value was something like 1.4 billion dollars or something like that and if he got enough money to cover half the price of all the oil underground he would not dig that up um i think after six years he very loudly shut down the scheme because they raised 13 million dollars and this is despite all the western promises that oh this is such a great idea it's revolutionary we've got these new agreements and targets to keep global emissions down as much as possible but when it came to it they were so unprepared to invest any money to, to actually keep a polluting substance underground and the, i think one of the only donors was leonardo dicaprio and I, th- I think more than anything, this sort of proved to Korea and maybe Korea used this as, as a mark, as an identification of the West's real lack of commitment to climate change and also how they were not willing to, to help developing countries keep resources such as oil in the ground and, and not sell them to other countries and how they, they weren't prepared to do that because that's what they're addicted to. This is what our society runs on. Our, our economic growth as much as Ecuador is, is related to oil as well. It's extremely ironic and disturbing that the only main donor was Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm. To go back to that, um, they received pledges of $300 million, but only $13 million was actually collected once, once wow. they knocked to their doors asking for payment. That's just embarrassing. That's, it, it is. It's shameful. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me a bit sort of critical and cynical about what these international pledges really mean. Um, mm. if, there's, if there's no one to actually enforce them, what says it's not the same where once it actually comes to comes to the time yeah. of collecting money to make a change, it actually happens. It's yeah. so true, like even in the any country, even in the UK, you know, like it's really easy for the government to pledge three mm. billion pounds for the environment. But where does that money go and like what does yeah. it <laughs> actually do? And yeah, it, I don't know. Yeah, you have to look a bit deeper. You draw on some big criticisms of Correa's plan, but I mean, he was able to make this initiative and, and all of these things, and it, it's all on the basis of Buenbevir. But I mean, he's using a really ancient and indigenous concept and trying to politicize it. 
So like, mm. was it open to manipulation or like, how is he using this, this idea? Yeah, I, th I think the idea of Ben Revere is so, so ripe and easily manipulated and, and appropriated by any politician wanting to use it. Because it's, it's, not, it's not meant to be a policy. It's, it's, never, it's never pretended to be, to be a policy. It was, it's more of a description of how things should be and, and how society should live rather than a prescription. That means that since Korea actually incorporated it and, and based all political and development decisions on Ben Revere. What does what does when we actually mean in that context? Does he use that as as the most important thing when de when determining an economic policy? No, and he actually gave him the right to veto in a lot of cases. So I, I think first of all, how, how it lacked any sort of detail or practical substance means for for politicians, it's, it's very easy to to then turn it around to their advantage. And for, for me, it, it felt more like a as a, as a, a way to garner support amongst indigenous community for, for votes rather than any sort of meaningful change. And when put into practice, you, you can see that Brenda Veer was not the basis for decisions. Um, when, when he did decide to go and extract oil from the Amazon, it, it clearly was not in the name of Brenda Veer. It was in the name of getting tax money and benefiting the lives of, of those living far away from the Amazon. So I, th I think the whole idea of how Brenda Veer is, is on a policy in the, in the first place and how it's been used as a policy, it, it means it's, it's very easy for him to use that. Do you think this is the like reason why the plan failed? First of all, the, the plan was, was so lacking of detail as well. It, it didn't it didn't say when when Vivir should be achieved or by what means. So it, it meant the timeline was not demonstrated at all. So Correa, for example, in, in this case, he he actually said that in order to, to achieve a society that lives under the concept of when Vivir, you must first use nature and extract resources to fund that development. And in order, to, in order to reach society in Buenos Aires, you need to dig up the oil. That was his choice. That was his start compromise. Um, and that's where that um, billboard I, I was talking about earlier in, in the Amazon was oil or life. You, you either choose a life where you have um, generous health packages and education for everyone. Um, but in order to do so, you need to fund that. And that, the, the way to do that is, is yeah. through oil. Yeah. So in the National Development Plan I was talking about earlier, he, he was talking about how in the short term they would use their base economic development on the extraction of oil in the Amazon. But in the long term, they would hope to try and diversify the economic um, matrix and to include more sustainable forms of, of business. So, for example, ecotourism, that was, that was one, of, one of the mainstays of the development plan. Um, but the thing is, like, if you look at most societies that are oil producers, it's very hard to actually get away from oil when it's such a, a profitable enterprise. And I think that was, that was a problem. So it's, it's really the... the the, the short-term use of oil to create a society that in the long term is Buen Revere. That was his, that was his overall promise. So you kind of end up with this conflict between the two where it's like digging up oil is an excuse for funding a more equal society. But as you say, in the long term, you're destroying nature, contributing to climate change, just like destroying yeah. communities. Um, yeah, exactly. And the most like contradictory thing is that Buen Revere, which comes from, um, like Sumacausa, which is an indigenous belief, it, the, the whole of the Amazon is indigenous communities, and they're the ones who created and believed in in Buen Revere and Sumacausa. So it's quite damning and quite sad how mm. they are the societies who are most affected by this short-termism approach, digging up oil to fund the social welfare programs. Mm. And they're they're the ones most affected by oil extractivism, and they're the ones who actually believe in Sumacausa. I guess, like fundamentally, Korea manipulated the meaning of Wembevere as an excuse to extract oil. Yeah. Um, how did he do this? What was the process? I think at the start, he it was the whole um, ITT Block 43 initiative where he would try and um, fund the program to keep oil in the ground. 
he realized that wouldn't work. So then he, he started to um, have this short-term approach of where he would use oil extraction as a short-term means to to create wealth and then to reinvest in other forms. So he talks about in one of the development plans in um, ecotourism in the Amazon. And then that changes again. And then it, then it relies on mega projects to cover the difference instead. And that was basically the, involving the Chinese and the, the Chinese political machine to invest in high, big hydroelectric power stations. One of them I looked at, one of the HEP stations they had in the Andes, they actually brought in all the workers from China. The Chinese owned the biggest stake in the plant afterwards. And none of the funds really benefited on any of Ecuadorian society. So it's, it's seeing throughout his time in charge, he changes the centrality of nature to his, to his economic plans, every single plan he submits. I think all of this highlights, like I used to sort of have a quite, I guess, narrow-minded view of the climate crisis and think, well, basically it's simple. Stop investing in oil and start investing yeah. in renewables. But the more I learn, the more I realise just how complex it is because as we kind of understand from all of this like even with the best intentions societies are built the very way we live is structured around oil and our economies depend on depend on it so much so it is just like the the challenge is so huge to kind of move away from this yeah and oil is always a really important earner for a lot of developing countries if the west no longer buys oil instead it produces energy from solar or wind turbines in their own country then I don't, I don't know, I wonder how um, some of these economies will be funded and what will happen in terms of their development afterwards. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess, as you're saying, with the Chinese um, investment, it means that actually Ecuador is losing, losing some of their land. And sovereignty, uh, exactly. Correa has tried loads of these different plans and different ideas, but in 2008, he passed this very revolutionary constitution that codified the rights of nature. So I just wondered if you could expand a little bit on that. Yeah, so um, for a country like Ecuador to be to be one of the first proponents of, of actually codifying the rights of nature in the constitution is, is admirable and amazing. And the constitution, so it, it puts nature as um, as central, Pachamama as, as central, um, as a foundation of the constitution and politics in Ecuador. Um, and it basically says that anyone can sue on behalf of nature in a court of law. So the first step of that process was to really say that nature is no longer a property. And then after that, any damage caused to it by any human activity could be sued for in a court of law. Ironic, given that they're selling off parts of the Amazon. Yeah, exactly. How, how do you justify that? It's, it's really interesting, though, but who is the person who sues on behalf of, of nature? So if the constitution says that it gives the right for anyone to sue on behalf of nature, it still does not mean that nature is immediately protected by the law. Yeah, you so you have, have to... the climate campaigner versus trillion dollar oil company. And also it requires people to have a vested interest in suing on behalf of nature. And often um, people would only have a vested interest if, if they'd lost livestock. I don't know, I do, I do find it pretty disconcerting that such a noble cause is getting lost, as it were. I wonder what you think in this concept of rights of nature and enshrining them in its constitution. This is one of the first places that has ever done that, but do you think it can? this model can be used by other nations around the world? Or do you think in its current form it, it wouldn't work to do that? Yeah, I think, I think it's really hard to say, really. I think when, as, as the world is changing, and we're seeing, seeing quite a lot recently, especially in the UK, how, how attitude and politics is really shifting about how we view nature in, in today's society. 
So I think in a, in a country like Ecuador, it's really difficult to expect there to be the institutions in place. Also, the, the, the pro bono pro bono legal centres, for example, that will sue on behalf of nature when, when there's no immediate financial consequence of it. But may, maybe in the UK, there seems to be more of a, a public momentum behind behind this sort of approach. And, and if the rights of nature were enshrined, I'd like to think that there'd be quite a lot of people who would try and protect them. But I, I still find it really hard to understand, especially in Ecuador, how they say nature is no longer a property. But the only cases where nature has been successfully sued on behalf of is when there's been a calculable financial damage towards the communities that na- nature exists in. Yeah, I mean, also what always concerns me is that, as you've been stating this whole time, the Amazon, let, let's take the Amazon as the main example, is home to many indigenous communities. Now, how on earth is an indigenous community going to be able to sue for the rights of nature and support nature when it mm. doesn't speak the language of the court? The court system might even be corrupt. And also they don't actually understand the concept of sorting disputes out in this way. And I think that's really, it can put up a huge barrier for any change to happen when actually, as you said, the whole concept of Buen Vivir exists because of them in the first place. So the fact that they can't even access the court to fight on its behalf is ironic. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a great idea, um, but it's, it's so difficult to implement. And it's, I'm not an expert at all in, in how legal systems really work but it seems like a a huge shift a huge paradigm shift and now the law would work where you can have a a non-living entity being being a legal subject Mm. and how do you motivate people to sue on their on their behalf i i find that hard to understand yeah i guess it's kind of like can you really take humans out of the picture like you're saying mel fundamentally it's if there's a cost like livestock or where people live but it's like does the nature have have an independent right beyond our human value of it yeah well said in your thesis you explain how Buen Bavir has been nothing more than a lip service to appease indigenous and social groups in Ecuador so how is this the case and I think we've sort of touched on it a little bit about um so the, the whole idea of Sumacasa and Buen Bavir is, is really a an old and indigenous worldview and the way I cynically described it how I think um, Rafael Correa used it as a way to to try and attract indigenous support in order to win an election against a traditionally quite different demographic and when, and when then later he then goes against this and and starts oil platforms in extremely environmentally and socially sensitive area, area of the world it really goes against exactly the reasons of Buenavir and Kausai and especially especially for the communities who voted him in on the mandate of protecting their rights as part of Buen Vivir. It's a, it's a huge contradiction. And also, even, even most of these social welfare policies he even he promised to, to Ecuador weren't really seen in remote communities in the Amazon at all. Um, it, again, it just funneled profits out of the Amazon and in, into the, the more urbanised parts of, of Western Ecuador. So the whole, the whole idea of all of life, as we've been talking throughout this podcast, um, it's a bit of a lie. It's disingenuous. It isn't really based on fact. It's a political slogan. Oil extraction, in the end, has resulted in, in huge damage. It's caused long-lasting health problems. It's decimated communities. Um, so communities where where there's many languages that we spoke before, they've actually lost ancient languages recently because roads affect r- roads. Are, roads are built in, into the northeastern Amazon of, of Ecuador, and eventually communities just dis- disappear because they. They get employed by the oil companies and then they move to the cities and it just it changes thousands of years of culture overnight. 
Yeah. And also in terms of their local economies, which are based on agriculture and fishing, these are affected by the pollution and also the, the noise created by these new oil platforms as well. So again, this, this goes back to the whole the whole point that the whole idea of oil versus life is is a big choice and it's life for the rich, it's life for the people who really enjoy from the taxes generated by oil, but it's not it's not life for these for these socially sensitive groups in the Amazon. Yeah, and I guess um, I remember reading in your thesis about the fact that Korea had promised um, the indigenous communities a right to veto. So mm. essentially, that would be that they could stop oil extraction or something like that happening when when the government consulted with them. But that was actually removed, wasn't it, from the yeah. constitutions um, during its redrafting, which annoyingly means that the government and multinational companies can essentially just stroll in and continue extracting oil. So you've just completely defeated the whole purpose. Yeah, exactly. What is the significance of Yasuni land to Ecuador and like more broadly the Amazon to the rest of the world? Yeah, so I think just to answer the first bit, like Yasuni is an amazingly rich area in terms of biodiversity. Um, it's actually been recognised by by UNESCO as as being one of the biodiversity hotspots in the world. Um, it contains numerous species of of trees, of plants, of animals, and also of cultures as well. And this is interesting as well. In, in the constitution, for, for many years, Ecuador has enshrined this area of Yasuni called as an intangible zone. Um, intangible zone of the Tigarian Taramanani tribes. And these are, these are two tribes which have basically been uncontacted for many years. Um, and in, in the constitution, they said the, they actually marked out on the coordinates. We, we cannot, no one can step in and change anything in these zones. These are exclusively, exclusively for the Tigarian and the Taramanani. So this means that no one can go there. No one can go there for oil drilling. No one can go there for fishing. No one can go there for tourism or, or any sort of economic, economic activity. But then when the oil bids happened, so they, they basically um, divided the northeastern Amazon of Ecuador into blocks. So I looked at one particular block, which is block 43, um, and they sell this into an international auction to oil producers. But when I looked at the um, boundaries they sold for block 43, it actually encroached in this intangible zone. So he went, went against his constitution, uh, constitutional promise, which wasn't even the one he, he promised, but it's been in the constitution for many years. So, there's so a, it was it was encroaching on this zone where indigenous tribes had never actually been in touch with the outside world. Yeah, exactly, and and they've been protected in there. I think since the 1970s, and there's actually a huge overlap between the zone that's been sold to an American and Ecuadorian consortium as a as an oil extractor, and this cultural zone which has been recognised for both its social diversity and biodiversity. Um, so it, it even goes against not what you, what UNESCO say about Yusuni being a delicate ecosystem, but also about what Ecuador itself recognises as being an intangible area, an area so important for Ecuador's culture that it shouldn't be encroached upon even by the Ecuadorian government itself. We've talked about Buenbevir and its impact socially and economically, but for your thesis, you spoke to um, a representative from the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities in the Ecuadorian Amazon. So, I mean, yeah. what, did, what did he think about Buenbevir and Correa? Yes, yeah, so he, um, I had a good conversation with this gentleman. Um, he was a representative of Confenii, um, which, as I said, is the Confederation of Indigenous Nationalities in the Ecuadorian Amazon, which is a bit of a mouthful, really. But they're, they're an amazing organisation and they, they're trying to bring together 
the disparate indigenous groups of the Ecuador and Amazon, which has never been done before. These are old warring nations until until very recently, but they've now been united on a common mission or common crusade against Ecuador's um, oil extraction. And their whole the whole belief is trying to try and protect these these culturally and environmentally sensitive areas through legal processes. They they use uh, lawyers, they use um, legal political protests, um, and they try and use political lobbying as much as possible. They they, they try and make what we said before as quite a, an inaccessible part of politics for most people, and more accessible by by uniting people and uniting their resources. So I spoke to this guy, and he, we were talking about. When within initially about its incorporation into into the constitution back in 2008 along with the rights of nature and he, he said everyone was so excited this was an amazing shift for us um they actually endorsed Correa as the president as the presidential candidate for the election um then he said that really there's been no material change to how business is conducted in the amazon and it, it, was, it was it was quite a shame and he he actually gave me so gave me one of the words my title he called it political appropriation uh, or political corruption they, they, they said in spanish um so they actually recognized this is the lie in his contradiction in using when revere in a way to get support with indigenous communities and then really throw it back in their face and use it as an excuse to dig up more oil in the amazon after we after we spoke there was huge protests and they did a march from the city of el coca in, in the east for hundreds of miles to quito um there were shut down, massive protests, lots of violence, mainly on the police's side. And again, they're just, they've been continued to be marginalised. But Confinia is doing a really good job in speaking up for the rights of rights of the Amazon and the um, communities that live there as well. So just to kind of bring this episode to a close, do you think that the um, coronavirus pandemic poses a change in Ecuador with, you know, oil demand has um, decreased and you know, renewable energy is now officially cheaper than oil and these kind of things. Do you mm. think there's a chance for them to diversify their economy? So, yeah, I think it'd be really interesting to see what, what the next couple of years will hold for Ecuador. Um, if it does diversify the economy because oil is becoming less important, it's going to be forced to do so much quicker than it had anticipated. And that might be quite dangerous, really. Um, another thing they're really relying on, we, we touched on before, these national development plans where they, they saw the long term future was using ecotourism as, as a way of, of getting new funds to the Amazon and then open up the, the economy there. But obviously that's, that's going to take a massive hit from COVID as well. Yeah. I hope that this, is, this marks a huge shift for the global economy in, in moving away from polluters and um, emission-causing fossil fuels. But then we also have to respect the idea that for a lot of countries, this is the, the foundation of their economy and what's going to replace oil as a revenue earner and the, the funder of social welfare schemes for, for these mm. countries that are less fortunate than ours. Unfortunately, uh, due to a few technical difficulties, some of what Miles said at the end got lost, but I really wanted to make sure that what Miles said could still be heard. Um, he, so he said he was worried. <laughs> he had been quite critical of parts of Ecuador's system, but wanted to express that he really thinks that Ecuador is a pioneer for incorporating the rights of nature into its constitution and for recognising indigenous philosophies. Um, and with this in mind, and with all that we've touched on in, in the episode, particularly in relation to Sumat Karzai and the indigenous teachings behind rights of nature, I thought we should end with a quote from Thomas Lopez, who is a climate activist and member of the International Indigenous Youth Council from Standing Rock in North Dakota. So he said, The biggest threat to humanity is humanity itself. Instead of listening to the indigenous people who have been here for thousands of years, 
we take the word of an infant Western society. Every strong relationship I've seen in my life is built on communication, respect and reciprocity. Yet we've created a toxic relationship with Earth, and, a, and as a result, a toxic relationship with ourselves and the people around us. It's all relative. What we're doing to Earth, we're also doing to ourselves. Um, but yeah, Pippa and I wanted to say thank you to Miles for speaking with us. And tune in next week for discussions on the so-called green recovery from lockdown. Bye! If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast, then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website, referenced in the show notes. We host a blog on there too, as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram accounts at earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.